So last week we finished a series on uh, the book of James, and today we're in Jude. Um, I think that I'd been a pastor, a lead pastor for 18 years, um, and uh, a pastor probably for 20-some years before I ever preached uh, a sermon out of the book of Jude. Uh, It's one of those books that's oft forgotten, and uh, one of those it's actually a letter, but uh, it, it's, it's found um, in the New Testament, and it's found towards the end of the New Testament, and it just gets forgotten all the time. But that's where we're going to be spending the next few weeks, I think, that we'll get a lot out of it and learn a lot of things. We just finished the entire book of James last week, and uh, I gave our uh, James study the title, Faith Does. Faith Does. Because more than anything else, James wants us to understand that faith does good. That faith gets lived out every day in our lives as we're in the community and as we're at home and and as we're just trying to live the good life. So the picture that I have is this faith has shoes on. It's something that we go out and we try to live in everyday life. And James says that faith perseveres in trials. Faith pursues wisdom. Faith Faces temptation. Faith rejects anger. Faith never shows favoritism. Faith recognizes that good deeds done are the hands and the feet of Jesus in a broken world. So faith teaches us to be careful with our words, to be diligent in pursuing peace, to not quarrel, to embrace humility, to not take advantage of the poor, to be patient in suffering, to persevere in everything, and to pray bold prayers, healing prayers. Bold prayers every day, all the time. And that's all of James in what, 60 seconds? Pretty good. I've never had a sermon that short, right? That's James in a nutshell. Okay, guess what? James had a brother, and his name is Jude. Now, remember that James is the half-brother of Jesus. After the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph had other children. We know this because there's several places in Scripture that mention them including Luke chapter 9, which says that Jesus' brothers did not believe in or follow him. And so they didn't follow Jesus while Jesus was alive. It was only after the resurrection that James and Jude and likely other believers became followers. There are three more Judes in Scripture. There are four total. There are three more Judes in Scripture. Jude is the shortened version of Judas. Guess why he went by Jude. Judas had kind of a bad name, or maybe not kind of. (laughs) There was Judas Iscariot, and we know him because he's the one that betrayed Jesus. And then there's Judas, son of James. He was another one of the 12 disciples. And then um, there's Judas Barsabbas in the book of Acts. So which Jude or Judas wrote the letter that bears the name Jude? The first two verses can help us with that. And so here's what it says in Jude, in these first two verses. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. It's interesting just to read that introduction and then to begin to put the puzzle pieces together because um, here in this passage, the the, that, that Jude, a brother of James. You know, their names appear earlier in Scripture. It appears in the Gospels when it says that they did not believe in him. But uh, we believe that it is Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, that also wrote a letter. He introduces himself as the brother of James. 
But instead of saying a brother of Jesus, he says a servant of Jesus Christ. And it's likely an act of humility where he, um, where he is distinguishing between that human relationship and that divine relationship is, is this Jesus is now my Lord and my Savior and I am a servant. And so even in the introduction, there's just this humility, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. That's how he introduces himself. And then there's this phrase um, that he's saying, to all who have, who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ. That phrase, who are loved by God the Father, it refers to the present. The verb form love indicates that God's love was manifested, yes, certainly in the past, but it's also a continuing act of love today for each one of us. His description, kept by Jesus Christ, expresses the most positive assurance that, that once we have committed our life to Christ, we are kept by him and for him. He keeps those whose faith is in him until his coming. And that's, that's over and over again. It's, it's reaffirmed in scripture. Jude, like James, doesn't rest on his previous human relationship. He, he just adopts a humble servant relationship with Jesus. From everything we can understand is that after the resurrection, he started following Jesus. And then um, with that, that he started to share the gospel. We're going to talk a lot about that um, today. The gospel, it means good news. That he started to share the gospel and that he began to plant churches. And from everything that we can understand, he's writing a letter it, generally to all who are called, everyone who would call himself a faithful believer. But probably even more specifically, he's writing to all of those individuals whom he has met throughout all of his time of traveling around the churches and planting churches. It's possible that, um, that Jude, um, that he was um, reaffirming um, or affirming the faith of all of those who... Um, who were in the churches, but then also um, that he was wanting to um, really challenge them, but warn them. He starts with a blessing, though. Jude, verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. I like that. Mercy, peace, and love be yours. Not just a little bit, but in abundance. And then Jude gets right to the point. In verse 3, he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. This is an interesting verse here because Jude wanted to write about one thing, but he ends up writing about a different thing. He wanted to write about the shared salvation that he and his readers had. He wants to encourage them and, and just to love them and, and talk to them about the good things that are a part of faith. And, and that's, the, that's the kind of stuff that, that he intended to write about, but he ends up writing about something very different. Instead of being able to write about encouragement and their shared faith and the grace of God's salvation, he writes about an urgent need 
He says, I felt compelled. I felt compelled. There's a sense of urgency here. The word in the original language means an obligation of a compelling nature. Complete obligation. Necessary obligation. Jude's reason for writing is driven by necessity. It's driven by this, just this sense of urgency. Is, is I have to tell you about this. This is so unbelievably important. He's pulling the fire alarm. He's saying, listen, this is really important. And he writes to urge his readers to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. The word contend is a very important word in this passage. It means to exert intense effort on behalf of something to struggle for. The root word in the original language is where we get the word agonize. Um, I did take a class on um, Greek and Hebrew and I, I, can't, I, I can't remember a thing about it as I can't remember Greek, but when I look at these Greek words, sometimes I can see an English word inside of them. And I could see the word agonize inside. And so I looked it up and, and it literally means to agonize over. It's where we get our English word, to agonize. He's agonizing over this. That word contend means to agonize. To struggle for, to earnestly engage in. And contending means defending and what does it look like for us to be, because it says the faith, contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Do you know that faith has been entrusted to you? That, that the faith that's written about in scripture has been entrusted to you? And that you have a holy calling? And that, that this Bible, this is the reason why is, is people took so seriously translating the Bible so that what you have today is as close to the original documents as it can possibly be. And that's why, that's why historically is, as Christians have gathered the Greek and the Hebrew doc, documents all the way from the beginning and, and, and a team of people will sit over those documents and they will agonize over getting, getting the translation as exact as it can possibly be. Because this has been entrusted to us when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the other ends of the earth. Is he's saying is, as I've entrusted this to you, is you have my authority to tell people about me, about who I am and what I've done. And, and so the disciples wrote it down for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's been entrusted to us. And so we agonize over this. So that we can have the exact word of God given to us today. And so we have to be very careful when we, when we think that we know more. And when we think that we can decide what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't belong in the Bible. We have to be very careful because it's been given to us. And sometimes we think, is, is, oh, that's, just, that's just ancient stuff. Is, is they don't know as much as we know today. I think that that's modern arrogance. I just think it's modern arrogance. They lived in just as complex of a world that we live in. They struggled with the same kinds of things that we struggle with, with the same kinds of sin that we struggle with. It was all there. It is yes, we have more knowledge today. 
But wisdom stays the same day to day. And so we have to reject this modern arrogance that we sometimes have in thinking that we know better. Jude wants us to understand that we must contend for the faith. But what does it look like to contend for the faith? It might be helpful to talk about what it is not. Contending does not mean being contentious. Those are two different things. Contentious means causing or likely to cause an argument or controversy. It's that intentional, I'm going to stir the pot. I'm going to see if I can make someone else mad. Contentiousness is, it's this disposition that generates ill will most of the time over inconsequential matters. And so, uh, I mean, this may not mean a lot, but uh, when I was growing up, the study of end times was just huge. And some people were saying is, is that Jesus is gonna come before tribulation and some saying that Jesus is gonna come at, in the middle of the tribulation and some after the tribulation. And, and, um, and people were just really arguing about these things. And do I think they're important? Absolutely. Do you know what I know? Jesus is going to come again. That's what I know. Do I have an opinion about the others? Absolutely. But am I going to spend a lot of time arguing about it? No. Because someday Jesus is going to show up and when he does, we will know. And there's other things too that we can just get so contentious about. Things that ultimately are less consequential. So faith does not mean being contentious or contending does not mean being contentious. I'm calling uh, this series, as if you saw the opening slide, it's very similar to James. James was faith does and Jude is faith defends. Second, contending for the faith is not to be equated with hostility, rudeness, or name-calling. You know, we should be among the most gentle people in the world, and you've got to know that this is not my nature. This is not my nature. Is, uh, you know, I just, um, I, I grew up in an environment in small-town Montana where um, people like to drink and fight and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, where arguing was kind of a pastime. And, um, and yet, for the believer is, is we're not to be hostile, we're not to be rude, and we're not to call names. In fact, uh, the Bible says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And sometimes I'm shocked at the things that come out of my mouth. Now, certainly, they're not the things that used to come out of my mouth on a regular basis. But there's still times when, when just something comes out that's just so unbecoming. In 1 Peter 3, 15 through 17, it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That means set apart. Some, some translations say, but in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, 
keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I mean, to me, he is, is that, that that's just is so helpful is, is that I can give a reason for the hope that I have, but I can do it with gentleness and respect. You see, it doesn't matter if people agree with me. What matters is, is that people agree with God. And it's between them and God. And so all I have to do is, is just gently say, this is a reason, this is the reason for the hope that I have. And I can do it gently and then just trust God for the rest. Third, contending does not mean creating unnecessary division. One article that I read said that contending for the faith is not marking everyone with whom you have the slightest disagreement. One aspect of spiritual maturity is the ability the ability to to overlook honest differences of opinion. And then to know is, is that there, there are times where we can severely disagree without being disagreeable. And so it doesn't mean creating unnecessary division. So what does it look like to contend for the faith? And I'm going to explain this, and it's, it's a little bit um, hard to figure out what this looks like in everyday life, but what does it look like to contend for the faith? And I'll, I'll say this, is, is always remember the gospel. Always remember the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Jackie Hill Perry, I don't know how many of you have heard of her. She's actually a rapper, a spoken word artist, an author, and a teacher. In 2008, she became a Christian And she wasn't your typical convert to Christianity. She came from a really rough background. She'd been abused in all kinds of ways, including sexually abused. Later, she got involved in drugs. She was addicted to pornography. She was actively engaged in a lesbian relationship. And in 2008, God spoke to her, not in a church service, but just spoke to her and invited her into a gospel relationship with him, a good news relationship with him. And she felt her heart begin to change. The brokenness begin to heal. The roughness begin to soften. She left life as she knew it, the drugs, the relationships, the sexual addictions, And today she is doing spoken word art. If you haven't heard spoken word art, maybe I should show you one of her. um, Her, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It is as she spoke almost in a, um, it's poetic and almost a rap without the music. It's, It's really cool. And she does poetry and she's a rapper and she's an author. Her book, Gay Girl, Good God, is her story of conversion. It's interesting because she was at a, um, a poetry conference. I didn't even know they had such things. She was at a poetry con- um, conference in 2010. Um, she met the man who would become her husband. 
She just finished a Bible study, writing a Bible study on the book of Jude. It just got published. I heard her talking about it this week. And here's what she says. To neglect the whole gospel and to leave out the parts that might make people feel uncomfortable is to remove the parts of the gospel that make it good news. Grace isn't amazing unless you understand that you don't deserve it. I find that remarkable. It made me think of Amazing Grace as I think she intended it to. You know, Amazing Grace was written by John Newton. And for those of you that have never heard his story, it's really quite a remarkable story because John Newton was was a um, was a very corrupt person, and that's putting it lightly. Um, even the way that he described his life, uh, here, here here's what it is. I, I looked this up, and so I'm reading it off my phone because um, I didn't throw this into the message because I always have messages within messages. Hmm. He says. How industrious is Satan whom I served? I was formerly one of his active under-tempters. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all of the human race with me. A common drunkard or common sinner was petty compared to me. He... um, he was pressed into military service because, because he was just so despicable they didn't know what to do and so they essentially enslaved him into military service. Um, when he ran away from the military service, he ended up being a slave trader and ended up be, getting deeply involved in one of the most horrendous industries to ever be on the planet Earth. I mean, as a slave trader, he inflicted the worst kind of things on human beings. And during one trip, there was such an incredible storm that he and his shipmates were caught in for weeks that literally when they finally got to Ireland, they were almost starved to death. But during that journey, he cried out for the mercy of God. And God began to change his life. It took two years, but he walked away from the slave trade. And he started writing hymns with the poet William Cowper. Amazing Grace was written on New Year's Day, 1773. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I mean, just even think about the forgiveness and the redemption for sin. Sometimes sins that are so unbelievably egregious that we wonder how can God forgive those sins? And yet, John Newton would say, is he can forgive the worst of sinners. Paul described himself as the worst of sinners is that he can forgive the worst of sinners and that the amazing grace of God can flood 
the hearts of those who don't deserve it. You know, I, I just think about that is, is just even um, personally is, is because, you know, I don't deserve God's grace. I mean, I'm really glad that you can't look into my life and see. Um, you know, but I can, I can kind of look back and I could see is, is that life would be very different without Jesus. I mean, my family just has such a history of anger and alcohol abuse and things like that. And by the grace of God, is things are changing. And my generation is, is um, most of my brothers and sisters are doing really well. And you wouldn't guess it is, is we lived on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. And that's no kidding. We, the railroad tracks were right in front of us. And the wrong side of town and all of that. And you know, is, is I can just, I can remember a time when anger was just there and when I couldn't control it. I mean, when I was a freshman in high school, I broke my hand on another guy's face. I'd already been a Christian, but I knew that there was an anger that was so explosive in me that I could lose it at any time. And, and that's something that I've had to submit to the Lord so many times. And you know, that whole stuff about loving your enemy is it sounds really cute and nice, but it's really hard to live out. And yet there's something that happens when God comes into our lives and begins to touch our heart and change us. Is the anger that used to be there is not there to the extent that it was. Is God has been re- redeeming that and it does not have the hold that it once did. And there are so many other things that God has been doing. But you know, there are parts of the Bible that I, that I just don't like because they're hard. That anger thing is hard. That do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth is sometimes hard. And thinking it counts as coming out of your mouth because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you're thinking it, it's almost as though it's the same thing. You might as well just, no, don't just say it. <laughs> but Jackie Hill Perry, to ne- neglect the whole gospel, to leave out the parts that make people feel uncomfortable, to remove the parts of the gospel that make it good news. That's to remove, if, you, if you're ignoring parts, then you're removing the parts of the gospel that make it good news. The good news is this. I told my brother this this week. The good news I'm not the man that I want to be. That actually is good news, in a sense, because I'm pushing for something more. But the really good news is that I'm not the man I used to be by the grace of God. Grace isn't amazing unless you understand that you don't deserve it. God's love doesn't seem so deep and wide and long if you don't realize that God loved you before you loved him. You see, we need to be reminded of the fact that we're not just saved from our sin and, and for some future good state that happens in heaven. We're not just saved for a perfection and a purity in heaven. We're saved to live heaven out in the here and now. It's the reason why we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how does, how does a little bit of heaven hit the here and now? Through you, through us. 
bringing the love of God into the broken places of the world. It's the reason why we do mission trips is because we want people to see and know the love of God, not to know us. We could care less if they know the Big Timber Evangelical Church or Montana on a Mission or, or any of the participants on. We want them to see Jesus and that there's a God that loves them and cares for them. We're saved to a good news that has ramifications for the here and now. And so Jackie Hill Perry, in a radio interview, she referred to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, when she said that God changed her heart and then began to change her in every possible way that you can imagine. But more than anything else, he started with the inside. And that's what God does. He changes our hearts before he ever changes our behavior. But he's not content with just changing us on the inside. He wants that change to be evident to all because the way that we live is a part of contending for the faith. Is I hope that when, that, that if people who knew me back when I struggled with so many things, that they, they know that something's different. Now I still got a ways to go. But a part of contending for the faith is being a living testimony of the change that God brings about in our lives because that's what God does. He changes us from the inside out and he's not content with just saving us for some future state, but he wants to save us to be his hands, his feet, and like Christ in the here and now. Have you ever wondered why the fight against sin is so hard? In Galatians 5, 17 and 18, it says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. So that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law, which is, it's, it's the former laws, is that you're just controlled by the flesh. And see, there's this battle that's going on. There's the spirit. When you put your faith in Christ, the spirit of God comes and dwells inside of you, the Holy Spirit of Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know, I am with them. Is that Christ by his spirit comes and dwells in our lives. And all of a sudden is, is we used to be controlled by the flesh, but now we're controlled by the spirit. We have the power to say no to the things that we didn't once say no to. And sometimes is, is, you know, that's hard because sometimes it's like, wow, Lord, I've been doing this this way for 30 years. And I know that it doesn't honor you. But sometimes we have to speak to our flesh, not to, to our broken, the broken side of us and say, is, is, hey, you think you're in control? You, you, you think you're in control because that's the way that you've been thinking and doing things for the last 30 years, but you are not in control. It's because I've put my faith in something better, in someone better. And so I just need to tell you that you need to just go and find some hole or just leave altogether because there's a better story and it's not the story of sin. It's the story of salvation. And so that, uh, you know what we call that? We call it gospeling ourselves. There's good news. You're not in control. He's in control. And I'm giving him to control right now. And we have to do it all of the time because if we don't do it, then we're given to control to the one who shouldn't be in control anymore because the flesh isn't in control. The spirit is in control. And so we have to gospel ourselves. We have to remind ourselves. And so in temptation, it's like, oh boy, what are you doing here? You're not in control. Is Jesus, 
help me. And when we make a mistake is, is, wow, Jesus, I hate that. Please forgive me and remind me that, that I've given control over to you. And so we have to gospel ourselves. We have to tell ourselves no to the bad news and say yes to the good news of Jesus. In Galatians 5, it goes on to say, is, is the, the acts of the flesh, these are the things that were against us. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. The good news is this. But, I love the buts that are in scripture. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Otherwise, that old law is nothing. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's that reason why we gospel ourselves. As we just say is, is, hey, you're dead. There's something new that's alive in me. That for if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. It's dead. It's the reason why we do baptism is baptism reminds us that our own old life is dead. We should, when we baptize people, we should just hold them under a little bit longer. Um, no, I mean, um, we should say um, something like is, is, you are now dead. And they go under the water. And you are now alive in Christ Jesus. You have been baptized into his death and he died for all of those sins. And you are now made alive in his spirit by his resurrection. That's the picture of baptism. If you want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, then on Easter Sunday, we're going to do baptisms. Paul says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You see, when we put our faith in Christ, is we're made holy in God's eyes. The Bible says that we receive the righteousness of Christ and he receives our sin. And that sin was taken all the way to the cross. And so that's something that happens instantaneously. We are made righteous and holy in the eyes of God. That's, that's something that just happens. In a spiritual sense, it is made true. Now here's the other part of it. So we're sanctified, that's the word, to be made holy or to be set apart. But then we are also in the process of sanctification. Meaning is, is that we have to live it out every day. And when we fail, then we have to remember that that's why Jesus went to the cross and then we have to recommit ourselves to being like Christ, rejecting sin and pursuing a good news life. Jude was concerned that the people that he loved and that the churches that he'd planted would forget the good news, the gospel message in all of its fullness. And so in Jude 4, 
He says, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our sovereign and Lord. The main point of this little letter, which we call the book of Jude, is verse three and four. And the message is this. It is the duty of genuine believers to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to his people. As that's what we're called to. Is we're called to contend for the faith and we do it first and foremost by just living out the gospel in our lives, being a good news people. We don't shake our fingers at the world but we do tell them that there is good news. Is that there is good news. You know, if God can change me, he can change anyone. If he can change a John Newton who participated in just horrendous, a horrendous industry, then he can change anyone. Jackie Hill Perry would say the same thing. Contending for the faith. Here's what Jude wants us to know. There is a faith that has been delivered to God's people and they're to contend for that faith. Second, it's a faith worth contending for. Third, that faith is repeatedly threatened. And interestingly, most of us feel like that it's threatened most from outside of the church. Jude would say is is that oftentimes the biggest threats come from inside of the church. With false teaching, when we begin to neglect the parts of the Bible that we don't like. And then fourth, every genuine believer should contend for the faith. We have a savior who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. He loves us so much that he does not leave us the way that we are. He loves us so much that he stepped out of heaven for each one of us. That he lived a life of love and goodness and truth and he was put on a cross by sinful mankind. His story is a good news story. It starts with the good news and God created. He created everything that we have right now, the beauty of creation, even though it's been marred by sin. He created the world that we live in and everything in it. And after each act of creation, he said, it is good. He created man and he said, it's good but not as good as it needs to be and so he gave him Eve because man was pretty incomplete without a better half. And then we're told a serpent slipped into the garden. That's bad news. And he deceived humanity. Here's the thing is, is Adam and Eve were created fully human. 
When we say to sin is to be human, we're actually wrong. Adam and Eve were fully human and yet without sin. To sin is to be less than human. We lose our humanity when we sin. And Jesus knew the terrible circumstances that Adam and Eve, or God knew the terrible circumstances that Adam and Eve were in, so he said, I have a plan. And they did not know that the plan was Jesus. But it's the reason why God stepped out of heaven in the person of Christ. Good news. The curse will not have the final word. Sin does not have the final word. Death does not have the final word. God says, I have the final word. And that final word is embodied by Jesus, the living word. And the written word reminds us that he so loved the world that he gave his son. And that our responsibility is to put our faith in Jesus and actually to be restored to full humanity to accept the good news and then to live it everywhere. Let's pray. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, then it's, I believe, why you're here today is because there's good news. Your sins can be forgiven. You are not what your sin says. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. You are made in the image of God. You are loved beyond what you can possibly imagine. You are so beautiful and so wonderful that God did not want to leave you marred. And so he stepped out of heaven in Jesus and he took everything that was bad and crucified it on the cross so that you can know the full beauty to which you are called. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you can do that just by saying, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry for my sin. I repent. Like Jude and James, I want to be a servant of yours. Giving my life to you as my Lord and my Savior. And if you have put your faith in Christ, just to say, as is Jesus, help me to live the good news more often and in every way. Father God, thank you for your grace. We always remember that grace means that, that we have been bought with a price, the, literally the blood of Christ purchased us from sin and moved us into your story, your big, big story. Thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.